0: Welcome to this episode of Scientists the Human Podcast. I am here with Dr. Chris Wood, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Pharmacology and Cancer Biology, and also the Department of Biomedical Engineering at Duke University. Thanks for joining me. All right, thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm uh, excited that we can finally set this up because... Uh, I don't know if you know, but I've been wanting to chat with you and do a podcast for about a year now, <laughs> but uh, right. but um, I mean, I guess we're both busy, you more than I of course, but uh, I'm glad we could finally set this up. Absolutely. Well, yeah. I'm happy to do it. Happy to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Chris, you do some really fascinating cancer research and part of it is focused on finding uh, combination therapies for cancer. Could you talk about why it's important to find combination therapies for cancer and why just single therapy isn't good enough?
1: Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, so I think um, one of the characteristics of human cancers is the fact that they are highly evolvable. So human tumors have a remarkable ability to evolve in the face of, say, a drug treatment. Um, and to find ways to survive in the presence of, of those um, stresses that drugs place on them. Um, and so one of the ways of um, preventing that evolution of the disease and actually extinguishing the disease in a patient is to combine multiple agents um, in such a way that it becomes very difficult for a tumor to evolve.
0: Okay. So use the word evolve a lot. And yeah. so it's. I think it's really interesting because... I mean, you 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 hear in the news often that oh, there's some percentage of Americans don't believe in evolution or or, or something like that. But I just think it's so fascinating that when we study cancer, we kind of see it every day. You right. you you put uh, a specific stress on cancer cells, whether it's a, it's a drug or or something else, and evolution occurs. So could could you kind of yeah. talk about maybe for for a LA lay audience of what exactly evolution is in, in this context?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, in, in this context, I'm describing evolution as the concept that where, um, it, when any time you have a diverse population of entities, and you apply a pressure to that population, you will um, uh, select for the the members of that population that are most apt or most able to survive and 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 proliferate and grow and get, and, and contribute to the next generation. In cancer, um, the the, the, the um, heterogeneity in the population that gives rise to that diversity is based on genomic instability. So one of the absolute hallmarks of human cancers is that they tend to have unstable... Um, Um, uh, genomes. That is, they have a tendency to have many, many mutations spread throughout the genome. They tend to have lost normal DNA repair and DNA integrity mechanisms that keep our non-cancerous cells stable during our life. Um, And as a result, in a malignant tumor, uh, at the level of individual cells, what we see is a remarkable diversity of genomic alterations and genome mutations. And what those effectively do for a tumor is provide it with an extraordinary ability to evolve in the presence of a drug stress. So the, 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 the tumor cells within a tumor that, because of the specific mutations they have, are most able to survive a drug treatment, will survive, they will proliferate, they will give rise to a next generation of, of cancer cells while the the cells that are less able to survive will die away and in and through that process drugs drug treatment selectively enriches for the most uh resistant cancer cells right
0: and so I think um so often you you hear, uh, oh, when are we going to find a cure for cancer and right but I think what you're talking about speaks to why a single cure for a cancer will probably never come to pass because. Of the heterogeneity in, in mutations that are across all different types of cancers, right?
1: That's right. Yes, yeah. right. And there's, there's kind of two levels, I think, to that point. Um, the first level is a, a, a very direct extension of what I um, just was speaking about, which is the idea that because of the heterogeneity and the extraordinary ability of cancer cells to evolve, it's unlikely that there will be a magic bullet, that there will be a single agent that can cure, frankly, any cancers. Um, or, or at least the the overwhelming majority of cancers. Um, the other facet, though, to that issue is the fact that the specific events that initially give rise to cancer development and growth are um, um, are are are, um, are 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 vary considerably um, across different tissues and across different patients. So. Um, the molecular mechanisms that cause melanoma are very different uh, from the the specific molecular mechanisms that cause leukemia um, and so as as a as a um, corollary to that, the therapies that should be used to treat melanomas are often very different from those that should be used to treat leukemias and so on and so forth
0: and so in in your research you I notice in in quite a few of your papers you tackle different cancer types, mm. uh, the colorectal cancer, breast cancer, a, a, among some of the, some of the few. So, I, I feel like a lot of cancer researchers, um, not all of course, but a lot of cancer researchers tend to. Focus on one type mm-hmm. of cancer, like okay, this is a lung cancer expert, or you know, brain cancer researcher. Mm-hmm. Is there a reason that you you decide to kind of go after several different cancer types at once?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I think, I think there are um, there are good reasons why many cancer researchers um, focus um, their efforts on a on cancers that arise in a particular tissue. Uh, breast cancer, for example, colon cancer. Um, that's born partly from the historical fact that, uh, historically, cancers have been treated um, based on the tissue from which they arose. Um, and um, and also because um, people who do translational work, who want to work not only in the lab but with patients, oftentimes need to stick to a particular patient subset. Um, Having said that, we in my lab choose not to take that approach. We instead take a relatively tissue agnostic approach. Um, and, and the reason for that is that although the specific mechanisms that cause, uh, to go back to my previous example, you know, melanomas versus leukemias um, are different, um, the, the, um, the underlying concepts are the same. Um, It is the activation of pro-growth pathways. It is the suppression um, of of, of pathways that block tumor growth. Um, It is the loss of genome integrity. These basic concepts are the things that give rise to almost all cancers. Similarly, the evolution of drug resistance, Um, although the specific details can vary from one drug to the next, or from one cancer to the next, as a general concept, um, drug resistance is something that occurs um, when cancer cells harness signaling pathways that allow them to overcome the effects of drugs and so at that level of abstraction, um, the, the the basic concepts underlying tumor uh, development and 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 therapeutic uh, resistance and tumor evolution are very, very similar and so the tools that we bring to bear to, to, to address this this issue are um, are similarly kind of tissue agnostic. Um, we develop tools that allow you to um, manipulate um, cancer signaling pathways to identify those that give rise to tumor growth or those that cause drug resistance. Um, and the same tools that we use to discover pathways that are important for breast cancer can be used uh, to discover pathways that are important uh, for colon cancer and so on and so forth.
0: So it's great that you mentioned tools because I definitely wanted to ask you, uh, so you... you employ a variety of technologies in, in your, your approach uh, to dissecting these signaling networks, one of which is, uh, which I guess has become a buzzword in the last few years, the CRISPR system, mm-hmm. CRISPR-Cas9. So you use uh, often, I would say, uh, CRISPR-Cas9 screening. Right. So could you talk a little bit about what that is and, and how that helps you uncover signaling networks? Absolutely.
1: Okay. So if you think about it... Um, it- if, if we know that um, it is um, uh, geno- genomic changes in cancer cells that allow them to, uh, for example, evolve resistance to drugs, um, and if those genomic changes ultimately manifest themselves as changes in signaling pathways within cancer cells, um, then um, it sort of stands to reason that um, Uh, one way of discovering the the, the genomic changes and and signaling pathways that are important in a given cancer context would be to go into that cancer and in the laboratory systematically alter many different genomic locations or many different signaling pathways and simply measure which of those changes um, endows cells with the properties we're looking for, that is, drug resistance. Um, uh, or other things. Uh, and so um, that is actually our relatively simplistic approach. It is to say that you know we, we tend to start projects by saying we are interested in understanding the mechanisms and pathways that give rise to, let's say, resistance to a particular drug. And so rather than trying to guess what those mechanisms might be, our approach is to systematically perturb and measure the impacts of, of every perturbation we can possibly make. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason why we use the CRISPR system, among other systems, is that the CRISPR system allows us, with really unprecedented um, precision and, and fidelity, to manipulate the genome of cancer cells and the consequent signaling behaviors of those cells rapidly and effect- efficiently. Um, and so what the CRISPR system essentially allows us to do is to go into cancer cells uh, turn on or off any number of different signaling pathways um, by directly manipulating the genome, um, and then and then rapidly measuring the impacts of those perturbations on the things we really care about, which is you know things like drug resistance. Um, and so and so ultimately, you know, we 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 are not using any one particular technology for that technology's sake. We're we're using it because we want to address um, the underlying biological questions. Um, but it, it so happens that the CRISPR system, um, is one system that gives us pretty remarkable control.
0: Great. And so there, uh, you have a, a recent paper, uh, that's, uh, by the way, so yeah. I, I uh, just a, a general question. So I noticed that the last few publications from your lab mm. have been in open access journals. Mm. So, I just wanted to ask you, is that uh, just a coincidental thing, or is that intentional yeah you know it's it actually is um, a little
1: bit of both i I definitely um, like and respect the the concept of open access. I think it's really important that you know science that's being done for the public with public money right. should be accessible to the public um, and in the most ideal setting, it should be accessible to the public, not just in the United States but around the world. And open access journals allow that. Um, I don't think that open access journals are a panacea. I think they have some of their own problems. Um, but they do address some of those underlying issues. Um, it also is true that in the last, um, I would say, five to 10 years, there have been a series of open access journals that have been created by major publishing houses, the Nature Publishing Group, mm-hmm. uh, uh, AAAS, um, the Cell Publishing House. That um, uh, that are not only open access, which is appealing, but also because of the prestige of the publishing houses, um, managed to have um, managed to uh, immediately um, uh, uh, generate lots and lots of viewers. Um, and so, when we publish our work, I think our primary objective is to put our work in the journals where it will be most broadly read, mm-hmm. um, and then a secondary objective is, um, when possible, to make that work very accessible.
0: Great. Yeah. Well, uh, so your, your, one of your recent publications, uh, or it's currently in press in Nature Communications, which mm-hmm. is an open access uh, journal, the Nature Publishing Group. Uh, so I read the title. Of course, I, I couldn't read the paper yet. Okay. It's not available. But I read the title, and it was very interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the word mitochondria stuck out. Mm-hmm. So could you maybe discuss a little bit about this new study and how you targeted uh, mitochondrial energetics?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so if I were to take a a, a very brief step back, Mm -hmm. my lab really is focused on, I guess, two major areas. The first area is kind of what we've been discussing before, which is the, 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 the question of how do tumors evolve in the face of drug treatments and how can we, by understanding those evolutionary processes, develop therapies that can potentially block it from happening. Um, The other aspect, the other part of my lab Mm -hmm. um, is um, basically trying to discover completely new therapeutic strategies for cancers, in particular cancers um, that are not amenable to many of the classic um, therapeutic strategies that that, that the field has been developing. Um, And and, um, examples of cancers that fall in those categories are things like high-grade serous ovarian cancer, a, a deadly and common ovarian cancer um, that has really not been um, um, responsive to immunotherapies. It has not been responsive to targeted therapies. And so it's, it's a cancer that there are many... There's a really extraordinary need for new, innovative new therapies. Um, so under that that area of kind of innovative new therapies, um, one of the things that, that um, we became interested in was saying, well... Are there are there facets of the way that 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 these cancer cells behave themselves that are abnormal, that are different from normal cells in the body? And one of the things that um, that ovarian cancer cells and, and other cancers as well uh, tend to do that's very different from other cells in the body is that their mitochondria behave differently. So you know you know Sim very well that um, mitochondria are the organelle in the cell that houses uh, two really really important um, functions. One, it's a it's a major site of cellular metabolism, and two, it's the site where a lot of cell death processes, that so-called apoptosis uh, uh, machinery, is localized. And so, um, one of the things that 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 has been observed in the last few years is that. Um, in, in, in all the cells of our body, mitochondria, um, and there are multiple, there are many mitochondria in each cell, are constantly undergoing uh, processes known as fission and fusion. So uh, the, the mitochondria are not a static organelle. Rather, they're floating around in the cytoplasm. Sometimes they bump into each other and fuse, so two mitochondria become one large mitochondria. And other times they fizz, so one mitochondria splits into two or more small mitochondria.
0: I did not know that. It's, yeah, it's
1: very interesting actually. Um, and, and it turns out that um, the re- one of the, it seems the reason why cells are doing that is that by um, by promoting more fusion or more fission, the cell can adjust its metabolic or apoptotic state um, to suit the needs of the environment around it. And that's an important function I think for all of our cells. But with that understood, it's, it's perhaps not surprising that cancer cells, we're now beginning to learn, oftentimes hijack this fission-fusion machinery to serve their own ends, those ends being a, a desire to, to grow um, um, very efficiently. Um, and so when you look at cancer cells under a microscope, what we often see is that their mitochondria are either far more fused than you would expect from a normal tissue Or, in some cases, far more fizzed than you would expect. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the basic hypothesis that we had, and this was work that was led by uh, a wonderful graduate student in the lab named Grace Anderson, um, and and a concept that was um, really born out of some of her creative ideas. Um, The idea that we had was that, well, if if mitochondria are really important, and the mitochondria uh, uh, in, in cancer cells are way more fizzed or way more fused than normal cells, surely that must create uh, vulnerabilities in those cancer cells. Sure, it gives them an advantage, it probably helps them to grow better, it probably helps them to um, survive in certain environments better, but there must be a, a downside to that because we know that in, in, in biology there's, there are always gives and ta- uh, you know, pros and cons, give and take. And so what we did is we tried to discover what those vulnerabilities would be. And the way we did it is we took ovarian cancer cells Uh, that had um, sort of a normal balance of fission and fusion. And using clever genetic techniques, we forced the mitochondria to be um, almost exclusively fizzed or almost exclusively fused. Um, And then each time we did that, we would then take the the cells that had um, uh, forced fission or forced fusion and we screened those cells against a large drug compound library. And the question we asked was, are there drugs out there that are much more potent when a cell has increased fusion um, or when a cell has increased fission? And ultimately, that led to the discovery of um, a number of classes of drugs that seem to be um, particularly potent when cells have screwed up mitochondrial dynamics, um, one of which, the, the so-called smack memetics, we wrote a story about, we wrote a, the, the manuscript about. But what I think we think is really interesting about um, this study is that um, ultimately what we found is that when you have messed up mitochondrial dynamics, as is often the case in cancer, there are things that there there are vulnerabilities associated with those changes. Um, And importantly, because the tumors that often have messed up mitochondrial dynamics. Don't have other easily targetable vulnerabilities. Now we have a foothold, mm. um, and so we're trying to leverage this discovery to try to build targeted or precision therapies for cancers that historically have been refractory to that.
0: Okay, so so in this study, you uh, focused primarily on ovarian cancer. Primarily, and, but so you, but you're you're saying that this finding could easily be kind of. Uh, generalized to other cancer types as well. That's
1: exactly right. And in fact, in the study, although m- many of our um, most detailed uh, studies in that in that paper are in ovarian cancer, we actually do explicitly show the reader that the exact same concepts hold up in lung cancers and melanomas and breast cancers and other others as well. Awesome.
0: Yeah. Well, everyone should look out for that paper. Once absolutely. We'll absolutely. It, it yeah. should be out in the next uh, few weeks, I think. Great. So, yeah. Great. Uh, So, I kind of want to switch gears a little bit and uh, talk about uh, a personal experience of yours, Mm -hmm. if that's okay. Yeah. So, you started uh, as a a PI, a professor here at Duke in 2012. Right. Right? And uh, soon after you started... Uh, you got some, some bad news about your health. Can we talk about that? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah, so I started on the faculty, as you said, in 2012. I was, I was 32 years old, and like a lot of 32-year-olds, I never had a health problem. Um, nothing more than a cold or, or, you know, things of that nature. And as I was starting uh, here at Duke, I was building my lab. I was working really hard. Um, I was drinking too much caffeine. Um, <laughs> I started feeling bad. Um, And when I say feeling bad, I felt initially like I had a a bad cold, Um, and the thing that was unique about um, the way that I was feeling uh, were two things. First, some of the symptoms were a little bit different from normal colds that I had 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 in the past. I had an extraordinary amount of tightness in my chest um, that was unusual, Um, and and more profoundly than that, um, the symptoms wouldn't go away. So I I initially went to the doctor a week or or two after I started having symptoms. Uh, The doctor, understandably, assumed that I probably had a cold, sent me home with cold medicine. And it was a couple of months later when the symptoms had still never fully resolved that, on the urging of my wife, I decided to go back to the doctor again because... Of course, it sort of stands to reason that if you get sick and you don't get better, that something uh, additional might be going on. Now, frankly, it never occurred to me that something really serious could be happening. Um, I assumed that because I was working too much and I was drinking too much coffee and I was stressed that I just wasn't kicking this the way that I normally would. So I went to the doctor. And uh, eventually, that led to a chest X-ray, which revealed a large mass uh, in my chest, um, and of course, that was really, really alarming. Um, and so, through a series of additional uh, tests, uh, all conducted here at Duke, um, actually within, you know, earshot and and and, uh, and, and uh, uh, clear line of sight for my lab. Um, uh, a series of tests eventually revealed that I had a subtype of a, a cancer called uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, um, and um, ultimately, the, the the only real treatment for that disease is to take a relatively intensive chemotherapy regimen um, that took about um, uh, four or five months to complete. So I was in and out of the hospital for the better, you know, the, a large fraction of that time. Um, I took an, a very interesting chemotherapy regimen that that is consists of both kind of old school chemotherapies, the cytotoxics that were developed in the 60s and 70s, uh, as well as some very very uh, advanced uh, targeted therapies. One a particular targeted therapy um, known as rituximab, which is a monoclonal antibody that specifically recognizes B cells, the the precise cells that had become cancerous in my body. Um, And after the chemotherapy regimen uh, was completed, um, I was uh, in the very fortunate position of of having a complete response. That is, there was no measurable cancer left in my body. And uh, another very fortunate thing was that, unlike many cancers, where having a response doesn't mean that you've been cured, with the cancer that I had, having a response was a very strong indication that I was likely going to be cured. Um, and then over the course of the next um, several years, of course, we closely monitored the disease. Uh, I was treated with an incredible, um, skilled by, by an incredible and skilled physician here at Duke. Uh, and, 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 fortunately for me, um, I, over the course of the next few years, we, uh, ultimately learned that the disease was not going to come back and that I was going to be cured. And, and so I think that, um, it was, um, a remarkable experience for someone who has devoted my career to doing cancer research to be, um, diagnosed with a rare cancer at a young age. Um, um, and I think through that experience, I, I, I learned a lot. I learned, um, you know, on like on a very in a very human way, what it feels like to have cancer. It feels very different to have cancer than it does to study cancer. <laughs> um, uh, I learned a lot about the um, some of the non scientific aspects of the disease. Um, I also learned a lot about um, uh, some of the clinical aspects of the disease that um, we don't think so much about in the research laboratory. Um, things like how do you how side effects are managed. Um, and, uh, and ultimately, I think that that work um, uh, has, has kind of changed, affected me in, in a couple of key ways. The first is that um, it, it helped me to understand the importance of not only doing research to lead to cures, but the importance of kind of social supports that people who are sick really need. They need family, they need friends, they need encouragement, they need survivors, they need to see that there's a potentially brighter outcome for them. Um, I also um, came to appreciate the importance of, of studying um, not just common diseases, you know, in, in cancer that would be the lung cancers and the breast cancers of the world, but studying rare disease. Um, the disease that I had. Um, is diagnosed in something on the order of about 10,000 people a year in the United States. Um, it is not a common disease. Um, but thankfully, a group of scientists and physicians have chose to, never, to, to, to ignore that fact and study it and ultimately develop treatments that cured me. Um, and so um, I think that that was a really um, revealing and powerful um, observation.
0: Well, I think it's amazing that uh you had such a great response to the treatment as you did and and, uh frankly i think the the scientific community is better off for it (laughs) thank Uh, you but uh so as a as a as a cancer expert and a scientist and and once you become a patient Mm. uh did you have any sort of input into what your treatment would be like? Or did you kind of leave it all up to the, the, the physician?
1: Yeah, it's really interesting that you asked that. Um, so um, the, the short answer is I did not have any input. The short answer is that because this cancer is one that uh, tends to be very, very sensitive to treatment and where outcomes tend to be very, very good, um, the doctor said there's no reason to mess with what we know works. Um, and but it, but it's certainly true that many of my friends who are fellow scientists asked me, "Oh, you must have sequenced your tumor. You must have um, wanted to get involved in a clinical trial." But I was very fortunate that I wasn't. Um, that wasn't necessary. Um, uh, having said that, I did have an interesting experience as a scientist that um, affected my treatment. So when when my when I first received my diagnosis, my doctor. Um, told me what I would be taking, which was this combination of chemotherapy and targeted therapy. Um, and he said to me, the outcomes, Chris, are really good. And as a scientist and as a quantitative person, I really pushed to understand what he meant by really good, right. yeah. you know? And and he, um, I think, reflecting a really nuanced understanding of what I really needed emotionally uh, would not provide me with quanti- with numbers, uh. Uh, because I think he probably knew that that was probably not ultimately in my best interest. Um, And so he just kept saying, Chris, the outcomes are really, really good. And I said, okay, okay. And so I I, I accepted that. I started my therapy. And I resisted the temptation to read uh, the scientific literature about my disease. Uh, Frankly... Even as a scientist and as, a, as an analytical person, it was too close to home to go to PubMed and try to read about it. It was too scary to me. Um, but something happened, and that was that literally a few days, I think it maybe was one day, after I finished my first round of inpatient chemotherapy, I was back home, I had fallen asleep for a nap, and I woke up, uh, my wife had also fallen asleep, she was still asleep, and I was bored. And so I got up my computer, and I do what I often do on, the week, on Sunday afternoon, which is that I started checking the scientific literature from the week before to see what new papers had come out. Mm. And in the New England Journal of Medicine, the world's most arguably most prestigious medical journal, um, there was an article, and it was titled um, something like um, Treatment of Primary Mediastinal B-Cell Lymphoma Using DAEPOC-R. That was the exact disease that I had and the exact therapy that I was receiving. Mm -hmm. And so um, it was this shocking moment because I sat there at my computer and I thought, if I click on this, I'm gonna see survival numbers. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna see how well this treatment really works. Um, And I had this moment where I thought, maybe I shouldn't look. And that lasted about six seconds. And then I thought, who am I kidding? Of course I wanna see what it looks like. And I opened it up And I saw something that I've never seen, which was survival curves that showed, in one case, 100% of patients being essentially cured. Um, um, And there were two studies, actually. In the other one, it was almost 100%. And so it was the best... Outcome I've ever seen in a wow. clinical study, um, and and that changed my outlook and it changed my life in some ways. Um, so it's it's a it's a it's a fun story and it's something I tell when I talk <laughs> to people about my experience. Um, but uh, but I guess it is probably the one way that my um, background as a scientist um, I guess most most strongly intersected with my own treatment.
0: Right. So I guess your your physician didn't have those uh, New England uh, Journal of Medicine numbers when you asked him. <laughs> it's funny you say that because that was my assumption. Yeah.
1: Once, the, once I saw the paper and I collected my wits and I realized how, what good news this was, I downloaded the PDF and I emailed my physician immediately. Yeah. And I said, have you seen this? And he wrote me back with two words, of course. <laughs> so it turns oh, out great. he had known for quite some time okay. about the results of that study. Yeah. In fact, he was personal friends and colleagues mm-hmm. with some of the other um, authors of the study. Yeah. Um, but even with those good numbers, I think his judgment was that I didn't need to hear the numbers. So, wow. so yeah. we had a good laugh about that. <laughs> that's
0: great. Yeah. yeah, I guess there's something to be said about a physician's uh, bedside manner. That's and right. Judgment, yeah. That's right. So, uh, so as we mentioned, uh, you came to Duke in 2012. Right. And uh, before that, you did a uh, postdoctoral uh, fellowship at MIT, mm-hmm. and before that, you did a PhD at MIT, mm-hmm. and before that, you did a bachelor's at University of Kentucky. That's right. So, your bachelor's and your PhD were in chemical engineering. That's right. So... How did you get interested in cancer research coming from a chemical engineering background?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. And, and my career trajectory has been very, very unusual. Um, you know, I, um, like a lot of us, I chose to study chemical engineering when I was 18 years old. I was a college freshman. And I had virtually no insights into what I should choose. And so I thought to myself, well, I really like math. And I was doing well in my freshman chemistry class. And that, and so chemical engineering seemed like yeah. a reasonable thing to do, um, and so I did. And it was literally that minute amount of insight that um, led me to study chemical engineering. I, I ended up really liking the analytical side of chemical engineering. I loved science in general. I loved my chemistry classes and physics classes and math classes, um, and so I finished up my bachelor's degree. I recognized at that point that I wanted to go to graduate school because I had been working in a laboratory from the last two and a half years of my undergraduate um, tenure. And uh, I recognized that I loved doing scientific research, but I also was beginning to recognize that I felt a real pull toward biomedical research, and in particular to cancer research, for reasons that I didn't fully understand. Um, I had lost a a grandparent to cancer when I was young, and I think maybe on some level that influenced me. but in any case, uh, I nevertheless chose to go to graduate school in chemical engineering because, frankly, I felt that I wouldn't—I worried that I wouldn't be a competitive applicant in, say, a biology department, given that I hadn't had—I had one biology class. Um, and so I went to chemical engineering, but I went to MIT, a place where, um, engineers were making real inroads in, um, um, m- m- biomedical areas, um, and, um, in particular, I was incredibly lucky to work with, uh, two PhD advisors, Paula Hammond, who's kind of a world-renowned polymer scientist, and Bob Langer, who's, um, a, a very, very well-known, uh, biomedical, uh, engineer, um. And under their tutelage, my thesis research was sort of tangentially related to cancer. We were trying to devise drug and gene delivery systems that could specifically target their cargo to certain tissues in the body, including malignant tumors. And so it was sort of what I call applied cancer research. Right. We weren't interested in understanding the basic mechanisms of cancer. Rather, we were, understand, in trying to interested, we were interested in trying to make better uh, therapeutic strategies. Now, during the course of that work, I found it riveting and exciting, but I also, um, the more I learned about cancer, the more I realized I didn't know. And the more I became worried that as a, in my career that it would be difficult for me to innovate if I, unless I learned more of the basic biology of cancer. And so when I finished my PhD, I did something very unusual. Instead of going to do a postdoc in an engineering lab, um, I went and did a postdoc in a basic biology lab with, um, with a fellow named David Sabatini, who, um, is a, a sort of world renowned, extraordinary, um, um, molecular uh, biologist and biochemist, um, who is very well known for, um, defining signaling pathways that are important in cancer, the mTOR pathway being the most famous, um, uh, and also, uh, is is sort of very well known for using genomic techniques to try to understand cancer. And uh, David was either generous enough or foolish enough to accept me into his lab, <laughs> um, and that was just an extraordinary learning experience. And literally, in the in the span of five years, I sort of I, I went into my postdoc as an engineer, and I left as a biologist. In many ways, I I sort of transformed. Um, and um, and so when it came time for me to think about where I wanted to go as a faculty member, um, I, um, I, I did think about engineering departments. Um, but ultimately, I think my interests at that point were so squarely focused on the biology of cancer um, rather than sort of applied engineering aspects of the disease um, that it was a very natural fit for me to find a home in a basic science department like the one that I'm in. Uh, here at Duke. Although, as you said at the beginning of the podcast, I, I do have a secondary affiliation with the uh, the biomedical engineering department. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So even though you said you transformed into a biologist, it still feels like your engineering background really informs the, the research that you do, the systematic approach that you take and kind of Looking at uh, signaling networks uh, across a broad range within using different specific technologies. That's right. As we've discussed. Absolutely, absolutely. And so I don't, um,
1: you're exactly right. Um, I think that although we're asking questions that are in the realm of basic biology, the approaches we use are very systematic, they're very unbiased, they're quantitative. Um, and those are things that I think are largely driven by my engineering training, the general way that engineers are thought to think about taught to think about problems. Yeah. Um, and so um, although you know I think in some ways it was challenging for me to redefine myself uh, as a postdoc um, and to relearn a field or to I should say to learn a field de novo, um, I think in some I, I wouldn't do it differently because, I think that the engineering training that I had really allowed me to approach biological problems in, with a different frame of mind and a different, uh, from a different angle. And I think ultimately that has been beneficial, um, to my lab. I certainly hope that it has been.
0: Well, great. There you have it. I guess, uh, transform yourself and you can transform a field. (laughs) (laughs) Let's hope so. Well, Chris, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a great pleasure having you on the show. Absolutely. I'm happy to do it. Thanks so much.
1: of Current Scientist The Human Episode. Stay breezy.